0: This is Gabriel Carrillo from the EdTechBytes podcast,
1: a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you are listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of each individual host. Make sure you check out all the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. And get ready, because the learning begins in three, two, one. everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. I'm your host Greg Goins, and my special guest today is Brian Aspinall, a best-selling author, speaker, and innovator in the area of STEM education. Brian is an educator, three-time TEDx speaker, coder, and consultant as an internationally recognized thought leader in digital skills education. As a recipient of the Canadian Prime Minister's Award for Teaching Excellence, Brian empowers educators to achieve more in the classroom using modern teaching tools and technology. He's also the author of two fantastic books. The first came out in 2017, titled Code Breaker, Increase Creativity, Remix Assessment, and Develop a Class of Coder Ninjas. His most recent release will come out in February of 2019, the name of that book is Block Breaker, Build Knowledge and Amplify Student Voice, and this one is all about how to incorporate Minecraft into your school curriculum. Brian is also Canada's first Minecraft, Microbit, and Makey Makey ambassador. He's very active on social media. You want to connect with him on Twitter, at Mr. Aspinall, and you certainly want to check out his website, at Mr. Aspinall.com. As you listen to this episode, please be advised that there are a few slight audio drags in the interview due to some connectivity issues, but I can assure you it's nothing that will compromise the quality of this great conversation with one of the nation's leading voices on Hour of Code and how to use Minecraft for critical thinking and education. Hey folks, if you have an interest in using Reimagined Schools as a source for a podcast study in your school district, please contact me as I'm currently in the process of writing a discussion guide that can be used to spark conversation about the reimagined schools concept. If you have an interest, connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Greg Goins. You can also email at drgreggoins.com. Most importantly, I want to know what you think about this idea of a podcast study. You can use a couple different hashtags to give me some feedback. The first is hashtag podcaststudy. And also, as always, use the reimagined schools hashtag to share episodes and kind of give me some feedback as to what you think about each episode. As always, folks, I want to thank you for being a loyal listener to this program and for making this podcast one of the very best in the education community. And as always, folks, I want to thank you for your time and efforts in what you do to create a difference in your school. So I hope you folks enjoy this episode with Brian Aspinall, on this edition of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Very excited to talk to Brian Aspinall today. Brian is a best-selling author, a three-time TEDx speaker, and he's an internationally recognized thought leader in the area of digital skills in education. Brian, how are you?
0: I'm doing very well here in southern Ontario, Canada. How are you doing?
1: I, you know what? I feel like I'm in Canada because it's, the wind chill is about 20 below right now here in central Kentucky. So uh, it, it's interesting. But you are in the Ontario area, is that correct?
0: That's right. And I love to challenge my American friends and actually a lot of my Canadian friends too. I live 30 minutes south of Detroit, Michigan on Canadian soil. Wrap your head around that one. Wow. <laughs> Wow
1: you know there there are a lot of great things happening in, in education in Canada, and I here in the States, I don't think we recognize that and talk about that nearly enough, so maybe brag a little bit as we start about all the wonderful things that that you see happening. and I guess how is the Canadian education system any different than it is here?
0: You well, know, I, I think educators everywhere are you know doing their best uh, for what's happening in our schools and the change that's taking place you know today. Um, one thing in particular that one of our provinces is doing, now in Canada, each province and territory has its own Ministry of Education, so that's sort of done at the provincial level. Uh, British Columbia has taken a leap, of the lead, if you will, and created a new technology curriculum. It's got a lot of design thinking components to it in the K-5 to space. Uh, block-based coding is a, re- a requirement in grade 6 and 7. Uh, the words computational thinking exist in that document, and grade eight students have to learn syntax. So there is um, there are some some gaps. I mean, in Ontario, computer science is elective an elective in grade ten. You know, uh, but in British Columbia, students will have experienced a syntax based block uh, syntax based coding language before even entering high school.
1: And I'm doing some research on you. Again, I'm a big fan and I followed you for a while on Twitter and and I've watched all the TEDx uh, talks and just some really great conversation there. But you are a recipient of the Canadian Prime Minister's Award for Teaching Excellence. And I know that's a big deal for you. And uh, it's, you know, it's not just what you do in the classroom, but I'm sure it's working with a lot of great kids over the years.
0: I'll be honest. the The award itself is is, I mean, absolutely humbling, absolutely overwhelming, and I'm grateful for it. But the biggest, biggest piece to that award is you have to be nominated by colleagues and by students. So that even today, two years later, I'm still emotional about it because those people took time out of their incredibly busy schedules to write about, you know, little old me and nominate me for this this national award. so I, i'm I'm really, 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 Uh, honored to work with such amazing people over the last decade.
1: And you have a couple books that I want to talk about and the book that uh, is out now currently from 2017 is entitled Code Breaker, Increase Creativity, Remix Remix Assessment, and Develop a Class of Coder Ninjas and that's a fantastic book. You know, as a superintendent uh, for 15 years in Illinois, I remember when the Hour of Code was first launched and you know the President Obama had the, had the video. Some of the celebrities, people like Ashton Kutcher and Mark Zuckerberg, uh, were trying to promote this new idea uh, of coding and computational thinking in our schools. And I remember uh, kind of launching that in one of the school districts that I worked in, and teachers actually calling me down to the classroom and say, you've got to come down and, and see what we're doing, it's really cool. And I, I would look over their shoulders and maybe in a computer lab, And they would do different coding activities, and you might move a character, a game character, you know, a few steps to the left or the right based on the coding. It's just amazing how that has uh, evolved and become this, really, it's becoming more mainstream uh, in classrooms throughout the country and really across the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think and I tell educators often, we have to view coding as a tool because people ask me all the time, should it be a curriculum? And if I'm speaking honestly, I'm going to say no, because the second we create a curriculum, we suck all the fun out of it, because then we have to evaluate it. And the second we have to evaluate something like coding, we standardize it. And the second we standardize it, we've removed all elements of creativity, which is contradictory to the purpose of using those kind of tools in today's space. I've really found coding to be a vehicle, a tool for learning for a lot of kids who uh, have been reluctant to share in other avenues, in other means. I think it's brought out the best uh, in terms of soft skills like collaboration, self-regulation, great growth mindset, whatever educational buzzword you want to put on it, these are spaces where kids can try something new without fear, because there's no grade attached to it, they don't have to feel vulnerable, and and take a risk, which is something we talk about in education all the time. We need problem solvers, we need risk takers. Well, here's an amazing space for educators and students to take risks together, in a new, and I'm using air quotes, so I know our listeners can't see, you know, this new space. Coding has been around in, in the education space for a, a long time. We're just, it's it's so mainstream now with access to technology.
1: And you know, I'm a big fan of obviously Hour of Code, but also of Genius Hour. What is it you think about uh, 60 minutes being that magical number to kind of roll out a new innovative idea? Uh, you know, hopefully we're going beyond uh, the 60-minute block on a lot of these things. But I've always found it fascinating that we're always kind of in that box.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, Genius Hour, again, with the air quotes, it's a great theme. It's a great um, idea, buzzword, if you will, to provide context around what it is we're trying to do in those 60-minute sessions. Basically, it's it's inquiry learning and it's project-based learning based on what kids are interested in. And speaking from my own journey uh, as a former grade 7 and 8 teacher, the first year we started Genius Hour, it was absolutely a nightmare because I didn't know as an educator what this actually looked like. And it really was, uh, in many ways, this this controlled chaos, so to speak, for that 60-minute window. We weren't thinking big picture. Kids would just do one project one week and then another one the following week. You know, fast forward a couple of years when we learned that this needs to be a big project that kids can spend months, months working on. Uh, it really started to challenge my pedagogy. And one, one project in particular that sticks out to me that was such a game changer. Uh, I had a grade eight, group of grade eight students. And here in Ontario, we stream our students in secondary in grade nine. And so our kids go into essentially a college university stream or uh, more of a hands-on work-related slash college stream if you will. Uh, And so I had a group of boys that approached me and said, we really want, you know, to, to take apart a lawnmower motor. We're going to take auto shop in high school. We come from a line of mechanics. I thought, yeah, what the heck? I'm good with it. If the principal's good with it because in elementary school bringing in motors with gas, oil, et et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all those pieces. He said, yeah, I'm all for this. He was a very progressive administrator. And so we let these boys work on this lawnmower motor and take it apart. But what really, really, really stuck out for me in that experience was the curriculum that they were engaged in, I began to recognize. So I started to move myself from this curriculum, you know, delivery driver, so to speak, to more of the curator role. And so as I'm watching these kids take apart this motor... I realized that one of them had made a comment about the size of the blade being something like 11 inches. And I said, well, what does that mean in terms of the circumference of the actual lawnmower deck? Well, believe it or not, grade eight measurement here in Ontario is circles. So now I've got references to pi and what that means. You know, 3.14, the distance across versus the distance around. And then they're asking me, why does it say 5W30 on the oil cap? And now we're talking about particle theory and viscosity. And guess what? We study flow rate in grade 8 science. So I'm hitting on all these curriculum expectations that these kids are demonstrating a mastery of. And I thought, wow, they absolutely get it. And that's when I realized that genius hour, we sort of removed the term, Uh, and tried to implement this approach in everything that we were doing. I saw more value in those 60-minute periods where kids are taking apart motors or playing guitar or learning to code than in the lessons I would structure in 40-minute lessons throughout a regular school day.
1: Yeah, and I I think that's great stuff and certainly needed uh, as we try to get kids to be more uh, engaged in critical thinking and using creativity. Um, You know, I think uh, it's a simple concept today, but I think back to when I was a first-year teacher back in 1995. How difficult it was to do something as simple as creating your own website. I mean, if you didn't know high-level HTML, there was no way that you could do hardly anything in terms of building a website. And now, you know, in the in the 15 minutes we've talked, I can go to Weebly or Wix or any of these free sites. And I can have a website up in, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. It's just incredible how in that short period of time, things have changed that drastically.
0: I studied computer science. Um, how I ended up in a grade five classroom is way beyond me. Uh, but I'll never forget my first grade seven and eight classroom and, and doing some coding stuff with them in the mid 2000s and thinking, Literally graduated from the faculty. I got $30,000 in student loans and we're doing in Scratch right now what I did in my whole third year.
1: Talk about Scratch a little bit for those maybe aren't familiar with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Scratch, I was really proud to see this year Scratch was announced as I think the 17th most popular programming language in the world and that's it, totally in part due to education because educators are using scratch scratch is a, a block-based coding program and what that means is that people who are uh, working in that in that space don't have to write syntax I always say as a former grade seven and eight teacher I didn't explicitly teach computer science I did teach writing and so kids had to write the English language accurately and of course my students would create spelling mistakes so there wasn't a chance I was going to uh, allow them to program in something like python or java or c plus because they would lose sight of the task if they're trying to debug a missing semicolon perhaps the task was about creating a Mac simulator so what i love about scratch is it's like linking puzzle pieces together to create a set of instructions like a recipe to move the characters around the screen built by educators for educators so we remove the, uh, the, the liability, to the fear, if you will, about student privacy and, and student data and, and those pieces because it's not a corporate entity. They monetize in different ways because it's from you know MIT University down there. So beautiful uh, block-based programming language that allows kids to engage in the concepts, the theories of computer science while creating apps and games to demonstrate content for learning in any subject area, including phys ed.
1: And, you know, I, I love the conversation about uh, about coding and, and all the benefits, but have you had any conversations or had any um, interaction with people talking about the impact of AI and how artificial intelligence may make a lot of these coding jobs obsolete? You know, maybe, um, you know, I don't know when it's going to be, but things move at such a rapid, rapid pace. And, uh, you know, I can see a lot of things already taking place with AI that kind of make you stop and say, you know, Look out! What's next?
0: Absolutely. I mean, we're going to a place where software writes software. It's inevitable, and I say that with my young people. But of course, there's a transition and an evolution there. We need to uh, we need to have that skill set of of industry people creating those those apps that will then write software. Um, but another piece in the short term, we talk about preparation for the next and education all the time. As a grade eight teacher, I was always told. Part of my job is preparing kids for high school and the narrative of preparing for post-secondary and preparing for the workforce, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think, and like you mentioned, with the world changing so rapidly, it's naive to think we have any idea what the future holds. And so providing a skill set to our young people that prepares them for anything is better than preparing them for where we think they might go. The coding piece to that conversation. Today, it's just a new way, a new fluency to build some of those skills. Is every kid in my class going to be a professional coder? Absolutely not. Every kid in my class isn't going to be a professional author either, and that's not why I teach writing.
1: Yeah, and I think that's well said. I think there's a place for a lot of different um, opportunities for kids to learn problem solving, critical thinking, and and coding certainly falls into that category. I'm also fascinated with this. I'll call it a movement still uh, for STEM or STEAM education, and a lot of people still don't understand, you know, how that should be applied or can be applied. Again, it's another what I call a one-off. You know, we're going to do just like Hour of Code or Genius Hour, we're going to do an Hour of STEM, when really it should be incorporated into everything you do.
0: I completely agree. Uh, I've actually heard. Uh, This statement said before, you know, uh, talking about coding and scratch and I heard somebody say, Oh, yeah, scratch. We did that, you know, or hour of code. We did that as if it's uh, a checklist item. Um, I also think some of our newer teachers are getting caught up in some of the bandwagon hopping and and saying and doing these things uh, so that they can drop it in an interview because every, you know, te- getting a teaching job here in Canada particularly is, is, is challenging as it is in a lot of places. Uh, and so I see these, these things, these themes like our being done and being seen as that, that checklist item where I, I've seen the value it brings. If you can integrate it into absolutely everything that you do, it, it's got tremendous payoff and being honest, In the beginning, I thought, wow, this is going to take a lot of work. But what I've learned is if you do it properly and use the appropriate technology, it actually created time for me to consolidate with students in my classroom. Rather than standing at the front of the room and lecturing for 35 minutes, I can conference just about everybody uh, on any given school day because they're so engaged in their own project.
1: My guest today is Brian Aspinall. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Mr. Aspinall or on the web at Mr. Aspinall.com. He has a great book out called Codebreaker. And Brian, you have a new book coming out in 2019. The name of that book is Blockbreaker: Building Knowledge and Amplifying Student Voice. And with your math background, I love this concept of incorporating Minecraft into the daily curriculum. Can you talk about that a little?
0: Oh, I would absolutely love to. And for starters, um, both Codebreaker and Blockbreaker, although technical in nature, I sort of have written, as you know, are familiar with Codebreaker, my educational philosophies into it uh, and supporting some of those ideas with examples, classroom examples using both coding uh, and Minecraft. And so the second book is not a how-to Minecraft in any capacity, but it does have a lot of uh, Minecraft lessons, themes, and ideas in them. Uh, I do write about the idea of Minecraft being what Seymour Papert once described as Mathland, a place where we can immerse kids into a digital world where they can think critically, collaborate while creating content. Um, One of the big stories I start in the book with, I'm giving a lot away. No one's going to buy it. (laughs) One of the stories I begin with is, is an autistic, a student with autism. I'm careful with my labels. I've said autistic students before and, and I've, I've been educated on on appropriateness. A student with autism came to my classroom in grade eight. And so that would have been his 10th year in elementary school, IEP, learning disability, mainly nonverbal. And because of autism, compliance wasn't his thing, nor was initiative, or at least the way in which we evaluated those skills. The system did not allow him to feel success. Uh, Long story short, He excelled so incredibly well with Minecraft, it became his portfolio for learning. And I think, hope, we were the first school to write Minecraft into his IEP as a tool for learning. He could demonstrate um, potential and kinetic energy by building Rube Goldberg machines. He demonstrated geography by building wetlands. He did... Uh, history by reenacting events that happened in our own community. He did all of his math because we considered one Minecraft block as a cubic meter. So volume, surface area, measurement. He was able to do growing patterns by building them in Minecraft. Uh, During the Olympics, he was able to build the flags and then we started to do, for data management, we were tracking the medal counts per country and he was able to put that on signs in Minecraft. And Minecraft became his massive, massive portfolio which is absolutely phenomenal. A big piece of this now, it challenges us, is how do we evaluate that context? How do we evaluate that experience? I now have to quantify what this student with autism has done. This brilliant work in Minecraft, I have to now put a number grade on. So I speak a lot in Block Breaker about rethinking assessment and evaluation because we scaffold everything we do on a daily basis. And then we often... uh, gravitate back to simple evaluation methods often for the sake of time i'm guilty of saying i need a math mark which ultimately meant i was giving a quiz because i could hammer it out quickly and that's you know contradictory to the idea of differentiation
1: And, and you know again i i think that's uh you know one of those things that Kids are passionate about. You think about gaming. You, th- you know, I look at all these kids. Uh, you know, kids and adults playing games, whether it be Fortnite or whatever the case may be. Uh, I have uh, some nephews that are really young. You know, six, seven, eight years old, and they're wanting to create their own YouTube channel so they can, you know, talk about gaming. And so, at, at some point, you know, we're going to have to uh, accept the fact that they're they're using those four c's uh, in trying to figure out how to play games and that's exactly what what we want them to do but maybe this is a better way of doing it than you know putting them in in straight rows of desk and and talking about what they should do let's let them bring in their passion and interest in the classroom
0: and you hit it right on there 100 percent. the idea of having kids create a youtube channel you just triggered another an idea in my mind it's I've always struggled with the data management strand of my math and early in my teaching career, I taught math in isolation. I followed a textbook and we didn't really overlap things that we did. And so when it was data management time, it typically meant let's make a survey and I'm going to send my kids in the hallway and they're going to ask other classes about information and they're going to organize the data, collect the data and display the data. That's basically, what the curriculum still reads today and we're all aware that Google Forms is capable of doing my entire strand of data management um, but the idea of having kids create their own uh, data set I think is what's crucial and your example of starting a YouTube channel there is so much opportunity to talk about data management and number sense and bias advertising how do we generate likes Move into the geography space. Where are hits coming from? I can track refer links. Where? Why is somebody in Sri Lanka YouTube channel? Let's figure out what's happening there. There's some overlapping themes. What food? What culture do they have in that country? It, it, like it just continues to go on and on and on. Based simply on an idea that a kid wants to make a YouTube channel about something like Minecraft.
1: And, and what amazes me is, you know, I, I, I watch my. My, my nephews watch other kids YouTube channels and I'm like what are you doing and they're like I'm learning how to play this game better so I mean it's just like us if we want to Im- improve our professional practice we go to a conference we buy a book we listen to a podcast these kids have already figured out that you know if uh, if Brian in Ontario has mastered whatever game I'm going to go to his YouTube channel and figure out how I can get better and that just blows my mind I mean that we have to bring that thought process into our schools.
0: I completely agree. 100%. And I mean, being a, you, when you ask our young people, what do you want to be when you grow up? YouTuber is a thing like that is a new profession. And you know, it's, it's, the odds of that happening to for our young people is significantly better than say, I want to make it into the NHL, which I hear a lot with my grade seven students. I want to be a hockey player. Great. There's a chance. Is it, is it a great chance? I'm not so sure. But if a kid says I want to be a YouTuber in the, in the world in which we live, that is highly, highly possible.
1: And you are uh, Canada's first ambassador for Minecraft, micro bit and makey makey and for, for folks out there listening that maybe aren't familiar with Microbit and Makey Makey, can you give us a quick rundown of what those are and how they can help you in the classroom?
0: Yeah, those are our phenomenal, affordable, steam physical computing devices uh, that provide a blended learning experience. Whether it's Makey Makey or Microbit, uh, kids will create content on the computer and then interact with the content they've created using these essentially physical computing devices that plug in over uh, a USB. So it offers the, not just the blended learning experience, but the STEAM experience, the physical computing, we've got design thinking, makerspace, all of those pieces um, can be done using these, these tools.
1: Well, it's been a great conversation, and I think you're doing some amazing things. And, folks, you want to get out and get both of these books, Code Breaker and Block Breaker. And I think Block is going to come out in February. Is that right?
0: Yeah, we're shooting for the end of February. So, fingers crossed, we're down to the last month.
1: Yeah, and I know how challenging it is to put a big project like that together. So, kudos to you and the people that surround you and support you and, and work to get those books out. So, as we kind of wrap it up, first, I want to thank you for taking your time. Uh, to talk with us today, it's been a great conversation. But uh, I'll leave you with a closing thought as we talk about how we can create better schools for kids.
0: Yo, you want my thought? I thought you were giving the thought.
1: Oh no, I want <laughs> I want to hear from you.
0: You know, so okay, I uh, haven't been in education as long as somebody like yourself. Um, but what I've seen, I okay. So for starters we talk about 21st century education. I never taught in the 20th century. I have only taught in the 21st century. Uh, and I think that makes a very important point, number one. Number two, our kindergarten students will see the 20th century. And so I think that we have a system of education that we're trying to Fix isn't the right word because there's an implication that things are broken and uh, granted there are pieces that need improvement, but maybe it's time to completely rethink a system, a new system, rather than trying to evolve the system that has been in place for thousands of years because the world has changed drastically for the first time essentially in those thousands of years.
1: And again, uh, I mean, you're, you're dead on. You hit the nail on the head. And I, I, we need people like you that are innovative thinkers, have that math background, value computational thinking, and, you know, most importantly, aren't afraid to take risks because we need innovative people in our classrooms to create innovative kids. So thanks again for your time.
0: I really, really appreciate being on. Maybe I'll leave with one final thought, and it's qu- quoting Jeanette Wing we have will will have achieved our goals with coding and computational thinking when computational thinking is no longer a term we just something about doing in our day-to-day interactions at school
1: well Again, that's good stuff, and that's a great way to wrap up the show. So, folks, be sure to get the book. Be sure to follow Brian on Twitter again at Mr. Aspinall, and go to his website, Mr. And if you have time and, you know, if you're snowed in and you have a snow day, you want to check out those three TED Talks because they're fantastic, as Brian is a fantastic speaker. And I'm sure he'd love to come to your school or education conference to speak more about what he's passionate about. So, again, thanks to Brian Aspinall for being here. And as always, folks, remember, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids. Thank you for listening to the Reimagined Schools podcast with Dr. Greg Goins. Be sure to continue the conversation on social media with the Reimagined Schools hashtag and subscribe to the podcast at ReimaginedSchools.net. You can also help support this podcast by clicking on the listener support link and making a small monthly contribution. Contact doctor Greg Goins today to invite him to speak or present at your next education conference or professional development day. Please send inquiries to doctor Greg Goins at gmail.com or on Twitter at doctor Greg Goins.